regardless of where we are today in our spiritual journeys, we all have this longing to be filled. We all have this spiritual hunger on the inside of our lives, although we may not use that kind of language to describe it. We may say things like, I feel empty. I feel restless. There's got to be something more to life than this. And so we long to know what goes into the cup. What is it that can satisfy the longing and the emptiness of our hearts? And then Jesus comes along and delivers another one of these shocking, radical, countercultural statements of his here in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6, where he says, Blessed, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they, and the idea is they alone, will be filled. There's one way to experience satisfaction, happiness in your life. And that is the hunger and thirst after righteousness. You know, most of us living as we do in the Twin Cities and enjoying a rather comfortable lifestyle compared to certainly many in our world have probably little idea and personal experience what it really means to be hungry and thirsty. Our idea of being hungry is a Big Mac attack. Or our idea of being thirsty is the dryness that we feel in the back of our throats following a workout. But in Jesus' day, these were significant issues. For example, many of the people typically would work day to day in a vineyard setting or with uh, livestock, those kinds of, of types of employment, and would oftentimes get paid at the end of each working day. And almost all of their income went to providing food for themselves and their families. And uh, so it, it would certainly mean if they went without income, without work for a significant period of time, they didn't have the resources to buy food. And so starvation was a significant reality. And then in addition to all of that, they also knew about thirst. If you've ever been to Israel, and I know some of you have, and we even have a few in our church who have studied there, um, but maybe you've read about it or heard about it in sermons, those kinds of things, how arid conditions are in that part of the world. It's not unusual, even to this day, to see people walking down the street who have their faces covered and not just because of COVID, but in order to deal with the blowing sand and the scorching sun. And it was the same back in Jesus' day. Their throats could quickly become parched, and their tongues would swell, and their lips would crack. So these people knew in reality what it was like to experience hunger and thirst. And so it's with the power of those realities in mind that Jesus now turns to his audience and to us today, and he says, happy, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Fourteen words that certainly are powerful enough to change our lives. For here in this fourth beatitude are four transforming truths about how the emptiness in your life can be filled. 
I want to draw your attention to those four truths today, and then we'll get to some questions of application. So the first of the four transforming truths is this, that satisfaction comes by means of righteousness. I would imagine that everyone everywhere uh, longs to be inwardly satisfied. I mean, we may be rich, poor, educated, uneducated. We may be young, old, regardless, Republican, Democrat, you know, but we all have this desire for inner satisfaction. And the interesting thing to me is we all try to find it in a variety of different ways. Some seek it through material gain, buying the newest, the brightest, the greatest of this or that. Some seek it through uh, pleasure. Maybe it's through power. It's getting a new job. It's uh, relocating. It's getting married. It's having children. It's winning the lottery. It's going on a cruise. I mean, all kinds of ways by which people are seeking to fill the cup in order to find satisfaction in their lives. And it's because we think these things have the potential of filling the emptiness that we value them as much as we do. I mean, if we felt, for example, that money would make us miserable, that it had the potential of giving us some dreadful, horrible disease, we wouldn't even go, go there, would we? And it certainly wouldn't be as popular in the economy of our world as it seems to be. But everyone longs for satisfaction. I mean, you do, don't you? What's the alternative? Longing to be miserable? I don't think so. So we all long for inner satisfaction. Well, Jesus also wants us to experience inner heart satisfaction. And that's really what these eight Beatitudes are about. Finding happiness or satisfaction in life. And yet the world, though it's passionate in an effort to find it in these different ways, never seems to get there. And I think the question needs to be asked, why is that? And I think the answer is because people have really never quite understood this verse. We're not to hunger and thirst after happiness, and yet that's exactly what people seem to be doing. According to the Bible, happiness is something that should never be sought directly. It always comes as a byproduct of our seeking something else. Let me illustrate what I mean. Maybe you're one of something like five million Americans that from time to time struggles with lower back pain. And every once in a while for you, it kind of flares up. And when it does, it is so painful, it's debilitating, it's terrible. And so you go to some doctor in an effort to seek relief. Well, that doctor is not a very good doctor if all he or she is doing is seeking to provide you with some comfort to deal with your pain. Wise is that doctor who seeks to discover the cause of the pain and then to treat that because your pain is simply drawing attention to some other difficulty that's going on in your life. And the ultimate treatment for your pain then is to treat the problem, not the pain. All right, let's apply that idea to our pursuit of happiness. People say, I want to get rid of my pain, all of this inner struggle, this emptiness that I'm feeling. I know what I'll do. I'll try the party scene. Or I'll relocate. I'll get married. I'll have a career change. We'll have a baby. Do anything to help me forget about my pain. 
But the question needs to be asked, I think, what's the cause of your pain and your unhappiness? Because you're not going to experience satisfaction in life by hungering and thirsting after happiness. Now, unfortunately, this way of looking at satisfaction is not confined to people outside the church. Those of us inside the church may not go running from bar to bar or in and out of relationships and some of these other things in an effort to find satisfaction. What do we do? We may run from meeting to meeting, conference to conference. We may run from church to church, always hoping to get this wonderful experience that's going to fill you with joy and ecstasy. Others seem to have it. You don't, so you seek it. Well, it's the same kind of issue. Just as people outside the church are not to hunger and thirst for happiness, those inside the church are not to hunger and thirst after experiences. It always comes as a byproduct of our seeking something else. Namely what? Righteousness. So the first of the four transforming truths, satisfaction comes by means of righteousness. The second truth is this. Righteousness involves both being right and doing right. Now, for such an important word as righteousness clearly is in this statement by Jesus, it isn't really part of many people's daily vocabularies, is it? I mean, unless you're on staff of some church or, um, you know, you work for some other kind of Christian ministry, you probably haven't used the word in weeks, perhaps never <laughs> in your life, right? So we need to understand exactly what Jesus means when he uses this key term, righteousness. So let me give you a summary. Righteousness involves both being right and doing right as defined by him, by God himself. Now, I think we understand what it means to be right. We know what it is to be in a relationship with somebody and things are not right. We feel the tension. Maybe there's been a conflict. Some bitter words have, have been shared back and forth. And there's a sense of separation and it gives pain to us. And so we long, we say, to put things right. And of course, that typically means that the offender needs to apologize and say, I'm sorry, I, I don't know what got into me, you know, but anyway, I'm, I'm sorry, I apologize, uh, please forgive me. So we do whatever it takes so that we can be right with one another. Okay, let's apply that to our relationship to God. Righteousness is being right with God. The problem, of course, is as we think about our relationship to God, naturally speaking, things are not right. We're aware of a sense of brokenness and alienation. There's distance. God needs to be reconciled to us, but we also need to be reconciled to God. And if we come to a point in our spiritual journey where we are very much aware of that brokenness, then we're ready to receive the amazing answer that the Bible gives to this issue. Here it is summarized for us in what I think is one of the greatest passages in all the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Now notice this next phrase. No longer counting people's sins against them. If the verse ended there, 
I would hope it would raise some significant questions for us. How is it that God, who's a holy judge, who can't have any dealings with sin, who is just, who must punish that sin, how is it that he's able to no longer count people's sins against them? Well, of course, the answer is found, fortunately, in the rest of the verse. God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. And there is this amazing transfer that takes place, which we've been talking about several times now over the last few weeks. How God takes, remember I held up this big book, kind of a record of all of my sin. God takes that entire record of wrongdoing and he transfers it to Christ, who on the cross becomes my substitute, paying the price. So God sees payment having taken place for my sin. He's a just God. He punishes it in his own son. And then he takes the perfection of Jesus, his perfect obedience, and he credits that to me. So when he looks down from heaven, he doesn't see a broken record anymore. He sees a perfect record. Now, on the basis of that, a just and holy God can forgive me. So in answer to the question, what does this term righteousness means? First of all, it means being right, being right with God. But it also has to do with doing right. And again, I think this is part of our daily vocabulary. We often talk about doing the right thing. What does that mean? Well, in the workplace, it means being respectful and kind to customers. It means you're a truth teller when it comes to delivery dates. Oh, you need the product first thing Monday morning. We'll do it. We'll get it there. And you're a truth teller when it comes to holding up what your product that you manufacture can actually do. So you're characterized by truth. You're a person of integrity in the workplace. In marriage, doing the right thing may involve keeping your marriage vows when for you that's a very, very difficult thing to do. In family life, it may mean being respectful of your little sister's toys, you know, where you're, you're not stealing them when maybe you could do that. It's doing the right thing. Well, in terms of God now, righteousness also means doing right as defined by him. It means keeping God's commandments. For example, a little bit later in the same chapter, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus makes this statement. Unless your righteousness, and here he means doing right, surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What in the world does that mean? The Pharisees were well known for the fact that they would typically fast two days a week when the Old Testament law required only one fast day a year. So is Jesus asserting that you and I have to fast three days a week so our righteousness surpasses theirs or we're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven? The Pharisees also would tithe 10% of absolutely everything to support the, the cause of God in the world. So is he saying to us that our tithing needs to be like 11% at least of all of our income, or we're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven? No, that's not what Jesus means. He's talking about 
doing right from the heart. And he proceeds to illustrate what he means. That's why we know this is what he's talking about by a series of six examples that complete the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. So in the very next verses, he essentially says to people, you know, the Pharisees teach you as long as you've never taken another person's life, you've never murdered somebody, you've honored the law that says you shall not murder. But Jesus goes on to assert that it also has to do with avoiding inappropriate expressions of anger in your life and not using critical derogatory terms in addressing people. He gives some examples of what he means. That's what he's talking about. He gives another example of how the Pharisees essentially taught, as long as you don't climb under the sheets with somebody else's spouse, you've honored the law that says you shall not commit adultery. But Jesus proceeds to talk about how we need to be in our hearts pure before him, and that means not treating others as sex objects. So it's doing things God's way. It's being like Jesus Christ. So Jesus is here teaching us that the only way, the only way that we can be blessed and know inner happiness and satisfaction is to be righteous by being right and doing right. Now, we can either accept what Jesus is saying here and then experience at least some measure of satisfaction in our lives, or we can do what millions of people around the world continue to do to this day, and that is to, to, to press on in our efforts, to seek pain relievers that haven't worked in the past and hold out no promise, of course, of providing satisfaction in the future. So Jesus says, Satisfaction comes by means of righteousness. Righteousness involves being right and doing right. Thirdly, he points out that the way to righteousness is through hungering and thirsting. You know, there are a few things that seem to drive us in life, like really being hungry and really being thirsty. If somebody is in such a condition, they'll do just about anything in order to satisfy those needs. Someone may walk many, many miles in situations of great difficulty and danger in order to secure water for themselves and their families. Nations have gone to war with other nations in order to secure water rights. Cities will sometimes, in a condition of war, surrender to a ruthless enemy in order to get food. Well, Jesus here is saying that God especially blesses those who are that hungry and that thirsty for righteousness. To use an analogy in order to help us to understand all of this, one thing that's very clear in our country at the present time is that people tend to have strong opinions about all kinds of things. I mean, have you noticed that reality? Sure. Some people will do just about anything, for example, to get our government to seriously address the whole issue of environmental concerns. Others are that passionate when it comes to the rights of animals or honoring treaties with Native Americans or it's all about gun rights or immigration reform or gay rights or issues of pro-choice or pro-life when it comes to the matter of abortion. I mean, it's amazing. 
The question, though, is this. Who is driven like that for righteousness? Who wakes up in the morning hungry for God? Who feels the rumble, not now of the stomach, but in terms of the soul throughout the day for the righteousness of God? Who is willing to pay almost any price to get this precious commodity of being right and doing right in relation to God? Know what the answer is? The Christian. Jesus is saying that's exactly what it means to be a Christian and why it is, therefore, that the Christian is blessed and knows happiness. Righteousness, Jesus Christ, God's kingdom, these are the great motivating factors in the heart and life of a Christian. So we as Christians believe that Jesus is asserting truth when he makes this declaration in Matthew chapter 6, still part of the Sermon on the Mount. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you as well. So our problem as Christians is not that we disbelieve Jesus. Our problem is that when we set out in a course of action to be right and to do right as defined by God, we get faced with all kinds of distractions. I mean, it's, it's like there are hundreds, if not thousands of them every single day, flashing their message, you know, they're out there blasting out uh, what they're trying to call us to do. Um, each one saying, here's the cause, here's the matter, go here, here's the path of satisfaction. Some of them not necessarily being wrong or sinful, but they're just not righteousness. They don't belong at the center of your life. So instead, like the person who's hungry and thirsting, hunts for food and desires and, you know, begs for water, in order, Jesus is saying, learn to live that way for righteousness. So each one of us, every single day, I mean, chooses constantly between righteousness and unrighteousness. We're constantly making that kind of choice. And it is the Christian who is hungry and thirsting to do what is right by God's standard that is blessed. Satisfaction comes by means of righteousness. Righteousness involves being right and doing right. The way to righteousness is to hunger and thirst. Well, the fourth one is this. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are satisfied. To use Jesus' language here in the last part of our text, they will be filled. Now, there's an interesting paradox about this satisfaction. Look, that one way, there is instant satisfaction. Look, that another way, and it becomes a process. Look, that still a third way, and it's yet future. So it involves a kind of a spiritual cycle. We come to God hungering and thirsting for a right relationship to him, knowing that by nature we are broken people, but we turn in faith to Christ. And we experience immediate satisfaction. The guilt is gone. We experience his forgiveness. We're brought into the orbit of God's fellowship and grace. And so as Christians, we're no longer seeking that kind of satisfaction because we already know in terms of our relationship to God that we are in the right. We stand completely forgiven by his grace. But then as Christians, 
We desire more than simply a legal relationship with God. We long to not just be right, we long to do right. We long to become more like Jesus Christ, reflecting his character and his conduct, to know Jesus more intimately. And so there's this interesting process and paradox that takes place where the, the, the more we hunger and thirst, the greater the satisfaction. And the satisfaction only serves to increase our hunger and thirst. And we go back and forth with all of this, uh, experiencing satisfaction, but then increasingly hungry and thirsty. We're like the Apostle Paul, who in Philippians chapter 3 says, I want to know Christ. And we feel like saying, uh, Paul, you already do. He changed your life, remember? And Paul would say, yeah, but I want to know Jesus more intimately. I want to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So the satisfaction is immediate, but it's also a process. And yet, looked at another way, it's yet future. I mean, the promise is ultimately going to be fulfilled in eternity. The day is going to come when all who are in Christ are going to be in the Lord's presence. We're going to see him in all of his beauty and greatness and glory. And we're going to become completely righteous, living in a world that is completely righteous. And we're going to know a satisfaction that goes beyond anything you and I can currently even begin to imagine. It's as Paul states it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So our responsibility until that day comes is to hunger and thirst for righteousness, realizing the entire time that it is God and God alone who enables us to be right and to do right. So, four transforming truths. Satisfaction comes by means of righteousness. Righteousness involves being right and doing right. The way to righteousness is to hunger and thirst, and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are satisfied. So now that we have a better idea of what this beatitude means, I want you to think a little bit about how it applies to your life by my asking you four maybe potentially searching questions. Here's the first of the four. Are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness? In other words, do you want to be right with God? And beyond just kind of a legal relationship with him, is there something in your heart that understands what the cry of the psalmist is in Psalm 42, 1, when he says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Was that your confession? Do you have any idea and experience what David has in mind in Psalm 63 when he says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water? Or is God kind of a convenience for you? You know, you come to church and maybe just sort of a sip of God would satisfy you. A few weeks ago, we celebrated communion with one of these self-contained little cups, you know, that have 
maybe a little bit, a half of a swallow of juice in them. I think Amy, Pastor Amy referred to them as an appetizer. Maybe you're satisfied with getting an appetizer of God. Or do you really long in your heart to know him in a greater way? People who hunger and thirst for righteousness like someone hungers for food or for drink will do whatever it takes to get it. So let me ask you even some more personal questions at this point. When was the last time you spent 10, 15 minutes before an open Bible trying to understand the will and the mind of God so you could apply that wisdom of Scripture to your life? When was the last time you confessed in prayer, Lord, I, I just need you in my life? Or how about the last time in kind of a state of brokenness you confessed, Lord, this pattern of behavior is just totally unacceptable to me. This drive for power and control and all about image and all of the other things we may be struggling with. I want to not only, Lord, be right, I want to do right as defined by you. So the first question, are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Question number two, what's killing your spiritual appetite? Maybe in all honesty, you would say, yeah, Rich, I remember a time back in high school or maybe it was early college when I became a Christian, when I was really hungry for the things of God. I mean, it was, it was amazing to me how much I was interested in Bible teaching and, and learning all about Scripture and all about Christ and having fellowship with believers and serving Him in the workplace. All of these things were great and realities for me. But you know, I'm married now, I've got this career going, and I'm involved in this or that area in my life, and I just don't seem to have the time anymore. Other issues have interfered, so what's killing your appetite? Well, in a lot of cases, I'm afraid to say it may be sin. I mean, reality is, when we disobey God in matters of integrity or when it comes to finances or purity or any of these kinds of things, do we feel like praying? No. Do we want to read the scripture? No. Do we want to come to church and really be engaged in worship? Not really. So sin robs us of a spiritual appetite, but so does pigging out on the equivalent of junk foods, things that may not be sinful in and of themselves, but things that destroy our appetites for God. I mean, imagine you're about to leave your home to go to a restaurant where you are going to enjoy a gourmet meal, your favorite, okay? And about a few minutes before you're ready to leave to get to this restaurant, you decide to open up a, you know, a container of Pringles. And there you are munching away, and by the time you get to the restaurant, you've lost your appetite for the gourmet meal. We can be that way when it comes to you know, spiritual matters, where we desire, for example, to spend a lot of time in an average day using social media or all kinds of hours in front of the television or engaging in even church activities that are just not filling the heart. So the question is, what's killing your spiritual appetite? Third question, what will cure an ailing appetite? Well, of course, if it's sin, it's confession. 
And if it's a matter of pigging out on junk food, I mean, it may mean asking yourself, what activities am I willing to reduce or cut out of a busy life in order to feed myself on Christ? For example, is there anything wrong if you're driving to school or to work these days, not simply working at home, that you turn on the car radio? Well, of course not. There's nothing sinful in in and of itself with regard to that. But maybe you're going to decide going in one direction or the other for maybe just a couple of days out of the week, you're going to keep the radio off in order to talk to God about the day. Spending time in fellowship with him by means of prayer. Or, you know, maybe it means if your routine is when you, whenever you walk through the family room is to kind of grab for the remote, maybe it means you're going to grab an edifying book instead. So the point is you're choosing not to engage in some activities, but to engage in other activities in order to spend time with Christ. So what will cure an ailing appetite? Confession if it involves sin, but rearranging some priorities if it's a matter of pigging out on junk food. Fourth question, what will stimulate your appetite? Well, in the physical realm, certainly exercise does, doesn't it? I mean, you work hard, play hard, you come in and you're practically ready to devour the table. Well, in terms of our relationship to God, um, you decide today to be God's person in the workplace, at school, in your neighborhood, your family, where you're engaging in activity to honor Christ in your life. And wow, that kind of exercise will fuel a desire to be here, to be with God's people, to engage your heart and your mind and your, and your soul with respect to spiritual realities. And I think another thing that fuels uh, an appetite for the things of God is hanging around with people who are hungry in that direction. Maybe you've had the experience, you're driving down the highway with friends, you've been on the road for a few hours, and, and uh, nobody's really engaging in a whole lot of conversation, and all of a sudden, everybody looks out and sees a billboard, Subway, eat fresh, you know, or Big Mac, next exit. And all of a sudden, everybody in the car starts to salivate, right? Well, it's the same thing that's true in the spiritual realm. You hang around people who are hungering and thirsty for the things of God, and you'll be hungering and thirsting for that which they hunger for. So, friends, here we are. Surrounded by a lot of these empty cups, empty lives longing to be filled, and Jesus is saying, there is one thing that can satisfy your thirst. And so perhaps today, for the first time, you're hungering for what God is offering you. And if that's the case, you need to pray, you know, Lord Jesus, I don't really understand much about this Christianity stuff, but I know you say in the Bible that those who come to you will never be hungry. And those who believe on you will never be thirsty. And so, Lord, I'm coming to you today. And for the rest of us, maybe it means praying, Lord, I haven't had a hunger for you as I should. What's robbing the appetite? What are those action steps that I need to take in order to reconnect with you? Blessed, happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Let's pray together. 
Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus Christ, the bread of life, the source of satisfaction. And we ask, Lord, that you would awaken within each of us a desire to turn away from the things that are killing our desire for him. Help us to spend unrushed quality time each and every day in fellowship with him, engaging our hearts and minds in worship that we might find our ultimate joy and satisfaction in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.